Hello, everyone, and welcome to the fifth official Seven Investing Podcast. My name is Simon Erickson. I am joined by my team of lead advisors, Austin Lieberman, Steve Symington, and Matt Cochran. Gentlemen, hello, and welcome to the fifth podcast. Hey, Hey, Simon. Simon. We're going to jump into a lot of different things today. We're going to do a round of winners and losers from developing trends, and I'm even going to spot up each of my advisors with a bullish or bearish game. But let's start with the lead story here, which is the Economic Cares Act. At $2 trillion, this is the largest stimulus package in U.S. history, and there's already discussion of expanding it to even more money into the future. This is covering a wide variety of different things. There's impact payments being made to households of up to $1,200 per adult. There's paycheck protection programs, which are paying up to eight weeks of salaries for small businesses. There's $150 billion of coronavirus relief fund to assist hospitals and medical suppliers, and a zillion other smaller details that we can't get into right now. But let's kind of talk as a team about what this is going to mean for investors. And and my first question, roundtable style, and Matt Cochran, I'll start with you on this, is what is this really going to mean for the stock market and for investing in general? Uh, sure, Simon. You know, like, f- I think four things stand out. Like, the economic recovery package was large, it was quick, it was inefficient, but it was also effective. It was large. Uh, $2 trillion was passed in the first round. More funds were approved today. Uh, for context, the Recovery Act and TARP in 2009 was about $1.8 trillion after adjusting for inflation. The New Deal during the Great Depression, $826 billion after adjusting for inflation. So even after uh, inflation, this legislation is is larger than any of its predecessors. It was fast, you know, it was passed within days after we realized we would need to enforce a quarantine, which would result in an economic shutdown. And anytime you have something this large and fast, it's going to be inefficient. And I'm not picking on any politicians or political parties. They were dealt an incredibly difficult hand, Uh, but a lot of small businesses that this money was meant for did not get the assistance they needed. While larger corporations with access to debt markets and universities with multi-billion dollar endowment funds did receive money. Uh, That being said, it was effective, I think. The quick action contributed greatly to the market's rally these past few weeks. When news came out that the legislation was virtually guaranteed, that was the exact moment the market started to recover from its steep losses in early March. And today, Congress approved additional funds, which I think will further help. So I think it helped uh, keep panic at bay at least for the time being. I have nothing to say because Matt just covered everything that has to do with the cares that. No, I'm kidding. One thing I'm thinking about as an investor is in, and I don't even know how to approach it. And I'm not sure that anybody does. Is just, what does this mean afterwards? What does this mean after we recover from this eventually for the years and hopefully a bull market afterwards? Because uh, we just went through, you know, the longest bull market in history, I think people have called it. And for as long as I can remember, people were doubting it and saying it was only because of um, monetary intervention or, or intervention from the Fed. And I can't, I can, I can picture having that same exact narrative in the years following this. So I'm, I'm just really interested to see. And, and for me as an investor, I'm, I'm just trying to do the best I can to stick to my process and stick to the companies that I was already interested in. I think that's actually something that's really important is to note, you know, like Matt said, the, the CARES Act was exactly what calmed investors' nerves. Apart from averting absolute disaster, however, I, I think it still remains to be seen whether uh, 
the rally is actually sustainable in the near term, especially as earnings season approaches and investors are given a clearer picture uh, of, of really the damage, the economic damage done by this pandemic. Uh, I wonder at that point whether the CARES Act will be enough or if the economy requires more follow-on aid, they just approved more today, uh, but more follow-on aid to bridge that gap until we see kind of more tangible signs of a true recovery. I definitely agree with all the points you all make. It seems like a lot of bankruptcies are off the table because the safety net's there, but we still might have some more uncertainty to go with it. Uh, Steve, like you said, there's more money going to this right now. Let's talk about the investing takeaway for this. Steve, if you can continue on, on that point, are there certain sectors that you think are really going to benefit from this with all the money being pumped into the economy? You know, uh, one of the things uh, I pointed out a, a couple of weeks ago during the podcast you and I did, Simon, was uh, any industry or sector that really makes it easier to work remotely or stay at home. Now, this isn't by any means a permanent thing, but I think there is a shift uh, that has happened. You know, you see a lot of companies have indicated that they will shift at least some of their employees to remote work. And uh, I read an interesting take from the New York Post a couple of days ago, suggesting that the CARES Act was effectively encouraging employees to stay at home rather than return to work. Uh, and that was thanks to a combination of their stimulus checks and generous unemployment funding that effectively meant they were making more in the near term than they would have otherwise if they were to return to the workforce. Now, certainly in the near term, uh, that plays into the hands of companies uh, that support internet infrastructure um, because the internet's basically being pushed to its limits as people are, are working remotely and uh, perhaps even restaurants as well, uh, I think, that are, that are well positioned to handle takeout and delivery orders. That's something that's kind of on my radar as well. I mean, I, I just, I've got to ask, you know, how are people going to be spending those $1,200 checks, right? Is this something that's going to paying your mortgage and picking up groceries? Or is this something that people are using and going to be bringing out and, and, and buying things online? And I think that that's going to ultimately influence which of these sectors is really going to benefit the most from it too. The other, the other one that we haven't mentioned just yet is, is the healthcare industry, right? I think that we're going to definitely see a lot of, uh, healthcare workers, drug makers, you know, these are kind of the heroes that we're seeing from, from this pandemic that we're in right now. And yet hospitals for years, decades now have been losing money or, or barely breaking even. And I'm hoping that something from this that could be positive would be uh, helping hospitals get those economics a little bit back in line. Matt, Austin, any other thoughts on, uh, on sectors that might, that might benefit from this? Sure. Uh, just specifically about the CARES Act. I think, uh, you have to take away that the airline industry is a big winner. You know, just a month ago, we were talking about possible bankruptcies in the airline industry. We're talking about cross-country flights with rows of empty seats. Uh, but for better or for worse, the major U.S. airlines received a lot of assistance in this package. And the industry looks like it's going to emerge relatively intact. You know, just a quick rundown for this, to get a feel for the scope of the assistance they're receiving uh, Alaska Airlines is receiving $992 million in payroll assistance. American Airlines and its affiliates, $5.8 billion. Delta, $5.4 billion. JetBlue, $935 million. Southwest, $3.2 billion. United Airlines, $5 billion. And, you know, remember, that's a combination of both grants and loans, but the airline industry certainly benefited tremendously from the legislative package that was passed. We're starting to see some companies report earnings, which is, is going to be uh, really interesting. I feel like the amount of money that people are getting probably isn't enough to spark big purchases. So these are things like automobile purchases, 
home purchases, things like that. But I feel like, and I, I believe we'll see this through earnings season, it's enough to keep uh, some home entertainment type subscriptions, things that are kind of monthly subscriptions that, that don't feel like huge lifts. I think we'll, we'll see those keep up. But I wouldn't be surprised if we see some large, some large purchases uh, tick back for a while as people look for some security, try to save money, react to unemployment potentially. So that's something that I'm watching out for is, is um, you know, things like automobile industry, homes, and, and large purchases like that to see uh, if, that in, if those industries take a hit. Sure. And then last question as we, as we kind of wrap this topic altogether is, uh, and Austin, we'll start with you on this one. Is this impacting your investing process in any way, being that we've got $2 trillion going into the economy? I'm, I'm trying not to let it. Uh, it's, it's hard. It's hard to know whether it is or not. Right. Um, it, even, even subconsciously, like if we don't even realize that it's affecting us, um, from a personal standpoint, I'm trying to keep things the same from, we've got our new picks coming out, uh, on the first of May and, and for my seven investing picks, I'm trying to continue the same routine that I would and invest in, in good companies. I am thinking about companies that as, as we're all talking about, the whole world is talking about that, that we're already strong that, but that are in industries that maybe these trends that were already happening are being accelerated by three, five, 10 years, and then we'll be strong after people still go back to work. So that's kind of how I'm thinking about it, but I'm, I'm still trying to stay in, in my lane and where I feel like I'm best as an investor and in companies that I was already interested in. I'm, I don't know how to invest in a company like Boeing that I, I wasn't studying and, and interested in in the first place. And I'm not going to go in that, in that water just because the company was down 50 or 60% because it's just not my, my competency. That's a a fantastic point. And I think something worth repeating is that investors shouldn't venture outside their comfort zones just to try and seize an opportunity that someone else is, is parroting. And uh, we get a lot of questions on social media uh, about this, these kinds of, uh, Hey, what about this company? And, uh, I, I don't think people should be afraid to say, ah, that's outside my wheelhouse. And I've done that several times over the last few days, even where people are asking about companies that I am utterly unfamiliar with. And I'm going to echo your sentiment that it really hasn't changed my overall long-term stance. Uh, I will say I'm definitely more cognizant of risks facing certain industries that felt much stronger leading up to this crisis and companies that were well positioned to weather it. Uh, I'm watching closely for some of the market's more pronounced opportunities that arise from this, especially as earnings season comes along. I think we're going to have some drastic overreactions uh, to both the positive and negative side, but uh, it really hasn't changed my uh, stance as far as... um, is how I'm investing during all this as well. Yeah. And, and, and I just, I just have one more quick thing to say is uh, there will always be companies and some of the best performers that, that I'm not invested in and that we're not invested in. And I, I'm, I try to do the best I can not to chase those companies. We're not going to own all the companies and we're going to miss probably some of the biggest returners, but a lot of times those companies are micro caps or, or, 
companies that I wouldn't feel comfortable investing in anyway. So, so how much of that, that return would I actually be able to hold the company through? Probably not a lot because I would get uncomfortable. And so another thing I'm trying to do is just ignore those companies that are out of my zone that I see like rocketing and, and focus on the companies I know and, and be, we can still make great returns that way. And, and we will. And so just being happy with, with returns from the great companies that, that I can be invested in. Yeah. And I certainly agree with you guys on, on all of those points. One thing that for me as an investor that I think is a little bit more pronounced right now is it's going to be an interesting income statement for most companies for 2020. I mean, think, think about what the line items are going to look like, especially on the payroll. Uh, you know, there's so much labor costs that now with this payment protection program, you, you've got um, a safety net that the government has provided for companies to keep people on the payroll. But still, you see the unemployment's uh, claims coming through, you know, it's just, it's, it's a mess. The, the economy is in a mess and companies are doing the best that they can. But I think that this does accelerate uh, what we've kind of talked about is the gig economy, you know, contract labor, uh, things like that, where, where companies are, you know, how do we come out of this on the other side? What does the American economy look like? Now that so many people have applied for unemployment and other things like that out there, I think that that's going to be an interesting income statement for the S&P this year. Yeah, a really good point. I mean, I, I think it's really important to stay within your, your circle of competence for sure. And just, you know, wait for your pitch, you know, uh, like a lot of analogies can be made to Ted Williams, who who just swung at pitches in, in the not just in the strike zone, but in pitches in certain parts of the strike zone. You know, as far as whether this has changed my investing approach, you know, I think I'm still trying to work through that. It's definitely accelerating some trends. Um, I'm trying to understand how much it's changed the long-term investing landscape. Um, definitely more cautious when it comes to certain sectors. Um, but so far, I think most of my long-term outlook has on most industries has stayed the same. I don't think it's changed it yet. Uh, but, you know, uh, I'm, I'm comfortable waiting to see how everything unfolds. Excellent points, gentlemen. And, and now let's move on to part two of our podcast today. We're going to call this segment Winners and Losers. And Steve and Austin both mentioned a couple of sectors that, that we think are going to be pretty good that, that might benefit coming out of this. Uh, but I also want to talk about some of the companies that don't do so well. And this can be CARES Act related. This can be coronavirus related. This can be completely separately related or just a long-term trend you see developing out there. But I'd like to spot you up with, with, with each of the advisors on the team. I'd like you to present one trend that you see developing. Describe a company who you think is going to win or gain share in their market from that developing trend. But then just to make it interesting, let's also describe another company who you think is going to be losing from this trend. Uh, Matt Cochran, let's start with you on this one. Uh, sure, Simon. Uh, so, yeah, one trend I think uh, that stands out is, is e-commerce. You know, uh, people can't go out of their houses – they're still spending money, and, and that's happening online. Uh, my winner uh, that I would pick, there's lots of winners, uh, but I would, I would go with Shopify. You know, early this month, uh, Shopify's management provided an update on the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the company's business operations. You know, and given the uncertainty uh, caused by efforts to control the spread of the disease and the duration and magnitude of the stay-at-home orders, Shopify pulled its full-year financial guidance like a lot of companies. Uh, the company also announced a number of steps it was taking to support merchants on its platform, including extending 90-day free trials, uh, creating gift card availability on all plans for all merchants, supporting local in-store and curbside pickup and delivery for its point-of-sale merchants. 
but the news wasn't all bad. And you know, however, as Shopify reported early indications that brick and mortar businesses were pivoting to online sales channels, uh, you know, owing to the decline in foot traffic from stay at home policies, you know, that, that just played right into Shopify's greatest strength. And, you know, uh, earlier this week, Shopify's CTO, chief technology officer on uh, April 16th tweeted out, as we help thousands of businesses to move online, our platform is now handling Black Friday level traffic every day. It won't be long before traffic has doubled or more. Our merchants aren't stopping, neither are we. We need to scale our platform. And then he included a link to Shopify's uh, jobs page, uh, their listings for uh, their hiring. You know, and to, to remind listeners, so he, he hearkened back to how Shopify performed on uh, Black Friday. To remind listeners how Shopify fared, on Black Friday in 2019, the company reached peak sales of $671,000 per minute on its platform this past Black Friday. Uh, now, look, that's not to say Shopify's great success has not been priced into its share price. Uh, in the last month, the share price is up 67%, and that's after today's decline. You know, that gives it a price-to-sales ratio of about 42. Uh, you know, but I have a position I'm holding. I probably am not going to add more at this price, but that company is really firing on all cylinders. Now, as far as a loser, uh, I'm going to go with eBay. And so look, there are other more obvious losers in retail. Uh, you know, I could highlight legacy department stores on life support or struggling mall REITs who can't get tenants to pay. Uh, but that seems really obvious. Uh, but let's take a moment to look at all of eBay's missed opportunities the past two decades. If you go back two decades, it was the e-commerce powerhouse. You know, in its most recent quarter now, its total revenue was down 2% year over year. And that's against the backdrop of domestic e-commerce sales in the U.S. rising 17% last quarter. So e-commerce sales rose 17%, eBay's revenue down 2%. Uh, now, eBay could very well score a temporary spike as a result of this pandemic, but long-term, this company has missed many opportunities. You know, it, it acquired PayPal early in the game to facilitate payments, but they never let it grow into the payments powerhouse that it is today until after it was spin, spun off. You know, it bought an 18% stake in Mercado Libre, uh, the South American e-commerce and fintech platform, but they sold it in October 2016. And since then, Mercado Libre shares are up 225%. But worse than both of those things, it never had the imagination to grow into something more. Uh, for uh, just a few examples, it never developed a fulfillment network for its sellers. You know, it was always happy to outsource that. It never developed a marketing platform for its sellers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We could go on. And the end result, it's eBay has allowed competitors like Shopify, like Wix, like Fulfillment by Amazon, and many other niche online marketplaces to thrive while it has floundered. And, you know, I've heard a lot of anecdotes this crisis about what people have bought from different online platforms. I don't think I've heard one about what someone bought on eBay. And the last three years, uh, eBay stock is up a mere 11%. And that's half the returns the S&P 500 has realized. So I just, my loser, I'm, I'm going to go with eBay. Good, good trend. Matt Cochran going with eBay uh, as the loser. Shopify as the winner in the e-commerce trend. Austin Lieberman, what have you got as your uh, winners and losers here? Yeah, and so this this kind of backs up to to what Matt was just talking about. The industry I want to focus on is 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 companies' digital presence, and there's a lot of companies that are in different industries that have great digital presences, and then there's the companies that provide the infrastructure 
that enable companies to have that. And so there's a couple huge ones, right? And these are, um, these, these are the big cloud providers from, uh, it's Amazon Web Services from Amazon, Microsoft Azure from Microsoft, and then Google Cloud Platform from Google. That's kind of the big, the big cloud computing backbone, the backbone of cloud computing. But then there's this, this new-ish trend compared to cloud computing that's edge computing. And there's a couple upstart companies that are much, 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 much smaller than Amazon, Microsoft, and Google. Um, one of them is already on our scorecard. And so in the interest of our paying subscribers, I don't want to share that one publicly. If you want to know what it is, start a subscription, you'll find out. Um, it's doing pretty well in, on our scorecard. Um, but one I will talk about is Cloudflare. Ticker is net. And again, this is an, an edge computing and content delivery network company. And so basically they provide um, points of presence to bring servers and uh, information closer to customers. And then they also provide a lot of security uh, to protect from attacks and stuff like that. And um, I think Cloudflare is, is a winner among a lot of the companies that, that Matt talked about as well. Just from their blog, they, they support a lot of that extra activity that we're seeing online in, in e-commerce companies. And, and they released a blog and a bunch of different numbers in here, but, but they're talking about internet activity being up as much as 40%. And so all of this activity is going to be good for the providers that provide the infrastructure and the backbone that, that enable that to happen. And I like Cloudflare because it's about, the last I looked, I think it was about a $7 billion company, lots of room to grow there. And uh, their CEO, fa uh, founder and CEO was also on a, another podcast. He was on Howard Linzan's podcast, uh, Linzanity. And they are, this is also kind of what I'm looking for in companies. They're not letting anybody go. They're not firing anybody. They're actually hiring people and they can't, he mentioned like they can't keep up with the activity that they have. It's been so crazy. They've doubled the size and I'm going off memory here. So I could get a little bit of these wrong, but they've doubled the size of, of their internship. And then they're going to give people job offers on the back end of that. And he just continued to comment about how, how busy they are, how they've doubled down on the work that really matters for them and how they, he thinks that, that, you know, his team is just so proud to provide the backbone of, of these services. And he actually mentioned telehealth and he, he didn't mention the company specifically, but he said, there, there was basically a, uh, a large healthcare company that onboarded their doctors and, and got them all set up on a huge telehealth network um, to get them ready to go. And I think it was like something like 20,000 doctors or, or some huge number to enable telehealth. And so Cloudflare, uh, they're, they're going to be, they were important before this happened. They're going to be even more important now. And I think they're going to be a major winner for a long time. Loser. Uh, I, I think it's going to be the companies that aren't that in general just don't have this digital presence and and they're not uh, they're kind of using legacy providers and so I'll throw one out there IBM just reported numbers I think it was today or maybe yesterday and I don't have their numbers in front of me but it wasn't it wasn't a strong quarter and I've seen all kinds of things out on the internet about how much they've done in buybacks and how poorly the stock has done over time. IBM feels like one of those legacy providers that is kind of doing things the old way. Uh, and so to name a company, I think, I think IBM is, is not in a, 
a position of strength moving forward. Absolutely. Well, Austin Lieberman, definitely one of my favorite uh, cloud computing advisors and analysts out there says digital presence being his trend. He says the winner is uh, edge computing companies. He mentioned Cloudflare. Uh, NET is the uh, ticket for that one. And then the legacy players like IBM could be the losers. Last but not least, Steve Symington. What do you think? I'm going to pivot over to the automotive industry. Uh, I, it, it seems hard to pick a winner uh, here because all these auto companies are getting crushed right now. Uh, Austin mentioned earlier that a lot of those bigger purchases are going on hold, but I think a winner here is, and, and I'll, I may gain as, as many friends as I do enemies from this, but Tesla, I think wins in the process here. And, uh, I, I, I really do, um, you know, think that Tesla wins in that they entered this with, uh, a clear lead over traditional automakers when it comes to electric vehicle technology, uh, particularly in the realm of battery development. Um, it, it's hard to argue that uh, Tesla didn't have a lead when it came to, to those batteries and uh, even when it comes to self-driving uh, technology. But I think this only helps them extend that lead, particularly as conventional auto companies work to balance their own electric vehicle initiatives with this stunning near-term disruption to their cycles and their legacy businesses. Now, take Ford, for example. Now, uh, I'm not going to single out any particular loser, but um, I I, I might say that traditional automakers in general are going to lose from this trend. Um, But but look at Ford. Uh, They had to borrow more than 15 billion, I think it was 15.4 billion from their credit lines last month. And that roughly doubled their cash position. I believe they said that should give them enough cash to sustain the business through at least September, but they're burning more than a billion dollars a week just to stay afloat. And I think anything that damages traditional automakers' ability to invest in next generation electric vehicle technologies only helps Tesla extend their lead in the process. And I think that it helps Tesla that they're so early in their long-term growth story that they really haven't ramped in earnest uh, when it comes to global electric vehicle sales. And this whole cycle is still so early. Um, and that's not to say Tesla's not losing money either. They're getting hurt by this. Uh, they entered this whole debacle with around $8.6 billion in cash on their balance sheet last month. And that was after they raised $2 billion through that really lucky luckily timed stock offering. Uh, They raised about $2 billion and you predicted Simon that that would happen even after Elon Musk suggested they, they didn't need it and they wouldn't do it. Uh, But that should give them enough breathing room to survive at least a couple of quarters, even if they had zero sales. And remember uh, before all of this, they turned cash flow positive and they were showing really significant signs of operational improvement leading into the downturn. And uh, I I think once the auto market rebounds, any scenario that really held back the progress of legacy automakers in the meantime will have been good for Tesla. I I don't have a position in in Tesla um, and I'm not looking at it as a recommendation of of mine for 7investing, but Elon Musk is just so smart. Like he, he, he does exactly what needs to be done at the right time and look at the company he's built. And, and I, I saw something, I forget who tweeted out, but there, it was a retweet of Larry Ellison from Oracle 
and he, I think it was at like an Oracle conference and he was basically just talking about how smart Elon Musk is and how annoyed he was at some of the financial journalism out there of people like basically questioning Elon Musk on what he was doing. And he's like, the guy lands rockets, his company lands rockets on moving platforms in the ocean and then reuses them to send them in space. He's like, what have you done reporter who's, who's telling Elon Musk, he doesn't know how to be a CEO. And obviously there's things like CEOs need to be kept in check. Right. But it's just incredible. Like Elon Musk. And Tesla I think he's do- a master troll too. He says things that give people room to doubt him. And then he ends up getting proven correct in the end. And, and for all of his outlandish goals and targets that they lay out there, uh, I, I think it's a matter of setting high expectations and uh, you know, nearly impossible expectations to achieve uh, slightly less impossible feats in the end. So uh, I, I, I like Tesla. I hold a position. But Simon, this would be uh, a good time to throw out the email in case anybody wants to send hate mail your way. <laughs> you, you read my mind, Austin. I was actually going to mention that anyway. We are at 7investing on Twitter or info at seveninvesting.com on email. Please let us know what you think about Steve's pick of Tesla. You can be a fan yeah. of Elon Musk and Tesla. You can hate Tesla. Either way, let us know your opinion. We'd love to hear those thoughts. But Steve, who is the loser from this auto trend that you mentioned? Traditional automakers. Uh, I think Tesla wins and I think everybody else uh, loses. And, uh, and that might even extend to competing electric vehicle makers who are other pure plays. I, I think... Everybody has a hard time keeping up. Um, So, hey, feel free to disagree, everybody, uh, at me. Come on. I, I will there, there's in. no other there's no other winners you you think steve you think it's really like tesla and everyone no, else in the i i think i think other companies can i i mean there's i think there's room for multiple automakers to succeed uh, you know, look at Volkswagen. They're not changing their long-term plans. What did they say? They're going, uh, is it an all-electric cast, basically, by 2026 or something like that? Uh, but I think I think the key is that everyone else is being slowed down. And this is costing traditional automakers billions of dollars weekly. And uh, it's costing Tesla, too, but they're earlier in their story, and I think they win. So without doing any research at all into the auto industry, one company I think could win, and there's a helicopter flying by right now, which you all might hear, uh, hear is, is Ferrari, ticker race. Um, uh-huh. Just because I think premium, the people who aren't going to be hurt as bad by this are the ultra wealthy and ultra rich. And that's the customer base of Ferrari. And so I, I think that, you know, in the end, they'll, they'll probably end up okay. So that's Good an point. interesting one too. Again, I agree. No research. I haven't looked Sounds at their financials. Research. Good call. <laughs> Yeah, I agree 100% about Ferrari. It's almost like they're not even a, really a, a car company, though, to look at them. They're just a, a luxury company. But yeah, Ferrari's a, an amazing company. Well, well, like we said, send us your thoughts in. Uh, I will uh, say that Steve did go on record and publicly call Tesla a undervalued opportunity when everyone else thought the company was going to go bankrupt and they thought he was crazy. And then Tesla skyrocketed over the next six months and next year. So that was Steve, about 200 bucks a share. Maybe that's right. Yeah, I think it's, but uh, hey, you know, they're, they're, they, they've climbed, but they, they've certainly gotten hurt since then. I Matt, uh, did, did we, we didn't skip you, did you? What's, uh, you, no, we didn't. Who, who hasn't talked about their trends and losers yet? 
Well, Steve, I'm going to jump in and give mine as well, just to round this out with a fourth trend. And, and I'm going to go with the media industry, uh, which is one that we've, we've kind of seen this happening over a period of several years now. Movie theaters are just kind of losing traffic. Uh, we know that Netflix was a huge winner from streaming early on for subscriptions. And now anything that's streaming related is headline grabbing and thriving, it seems. Every company that used to have a presence on cable TV bundles now wants to have their own over-the-top streaming app. And, and this is a, a huge trend that's, that's going on right now. Um, I think my winner from this is Disney, which is, again, another controversial topic. We could probably have a two-beer conversation on this one as well. But Disney has got a cash cow with ESPN, which was always being paid through affiliate fees with those cable companies, right? So the average subscriber, when you take all the money that, that Disney has gotten from ESPN over the years and break it down on a subscriber per month, they were getting about $11 in affiliate fees per subscriber of cable TV every month. And that's huge. That's an order of magnitude larger than almost any other channel out there on cable TV. Everybody wanted live sports. And so Disney has gotten smart and understands they're going to keep their cash cow as long as they can, but they've also started to play around with the idea of offering these over-the-top streaming apps. You can watch on iPad, you can watch on your computer, you can watch on a connected TV however you want to. You've got ESPN Plus, which is $5 a month, which is one that's incredibly popular. And so there's a, a handoff that Disney can have from its media networks group so that it's not losing those profits over time. And the other thing that really I just, I can't not pay attention to and double underline is the success of Disney Plus. I mean, in five months, this is a group that's now got 50 million subscribers compared to the 83 million that it's taken so many years to get with ESPN that is slowly, grow, that is slowly declining. You just see this accelerated growth of Disney Plus, obviously a huge success. And the beauty of it is a lot of that is leveraging already existing legacy content that Disney isn't even putting production budgets in. It's just that you want to see Frozen and Frozen 2 because your two-year-old is asking for it all the time. You fire up Disney Plus rather than putting it on the VCR or the DVD player. Uh, Disney, to me, is, is a company that has handled the transition in its media group from cable TV to streaming incredibly well. And I think my loser uh, in, in this same trend is really these, what, what I would call independent movie studios or independent content providers, ones that haven't quite done as well with managing that transition to over the top. And the company that I'll mention is Lionsgate Entertainment. Uh, this is a company that merged with Stars a couple of years ago. So they do have some content that is popular out there, but they just haven't had the offset of the decline that they've seen from those legacy assets. So, for example, Stars lost 5% of its American subscribers, which was 1.2 million people last year. They didn't supplement that with an with a, with a over-the-top solution with Stars. They tried to, to balance that off with international growth. But I think that these, these independent studios, it's just a harder game for them because there's only so much time that we have to watch TV every, every day and every week. And with only so much time and now the, the onus on us to sign up for these independent uh, over-the-top solutions, you're only going to sign up for a couple. You're not going to go out and sign up for 20 of them like you had in bundled cable with the TVs, all, all the channels together. You're going to sign up for maybe three or four or five. And I just wonder, you know, for a Disney Plus, that makes a lot of sense because it's got such a wide library of content, not even in Disney's content. I mean, now you've got 21st Century Fox, uh, you've got Hulu, you know, you've got a whole bunch of different assets that they brought on the same roof. 
I think that something like that, content is still king. And I'm going to go with the house of mouse as the, the winner and Lionsgate is my loser. Simon, how do you weigh the, the, the positives that Disney Plus is showing, like with their like amazing subscriber growth against the negatives of the parks being closed, uh, you know, movie theaters being closed? How, how do you weigh those two in your mind? That's right, Matt. So, so Disney kind of has four divisions within Disney, if you will. There's media networks, which is kind of the stuff they've traditionally gotten those affiliate fees from cable networks. You've got the parks, uh, which like you just mentioned, you've got the uh, studios, which they're releasing movies, stuff like Lucasfilm, you know, any Disney movies out there. And then you've got the direct consumer and international. And so this is a constant balance when you get a large enough company like Disney is that's consolidating. It's got to kind of balance, you know, where the costs go, where is everything going to balance out for this? But there's no doubt that they have spent very heavily on the over the top platforms and building those in recent years, right? Like BamTech for ESPN, over the top sports things, Disney plus over the top content. Um, the parks, I, I, I really can't see a, a positive that's come from the coronavirus shutting down the parks. That's all negative. There's nothing good that's come out of that from Disney. Uh, but I do think that the media group, at least, uh, which is where Disney derives most of its profits, it's still going to continue to cash cow that as long as it can with the cable networks and have a much softer landing as it, as it offers other solutions. Okay, guys. So some great, great topics there about the winners and losers from these developing trends. Again, Matt mentioned e-commerce. Uh, Austin mentioned companies with a digital presence. Steve mentioned um, the automotive industry. I mentioned the media industry. Uh, please, again, it's, it, we're at 7investing on Twitter, info at 7investing.com. Please chime in with your thoughts on any of these topics, as well as your opinions on Elon Musk being brilliant. Now, in our final, in our final segment of the podcast today, this is something that I'm going to really enjoy, at least much more than my other advisors, because I'm going to actually key them up with a topic a conceptual topic that they're going to have to tell me if they are bullish or bearish about. Bullish, of course, means they're a fan of it. They're positive on this. They, they think that this is going to gain momentum in the future. Bearish is their negative. They don't see it playing out quite as well. And we're not talking about individual stocks here. We're talking about concepts. And just to set the record straight, they have not seen this list yet. So this is off the cuff and you're getting the truest response from them. Uh, gentlemen, are you ready for the game of bullish versus bearish? I was born for this. Let's do Let's it. Let's do it. Okay, I'm going to start with you, Steve Simonton. Uh, the first question is with regards to Alphabet. Alphabet, of course, one of the largest tech companies on the planet, uh, but has built its empire traditionally around advertising. But they've started in recent years to start placing what they're calling other bets, which is outside of their core competency. And last year, Alphabet derived a total of $659 million from other bets in total revenue. But out of its $162 billion of total revenue, that's only 0.4% of sales. Bullish or bearish, Steve, on other bets accounting for more than 5% of Alphabet's total revenue within the next seven years? Ooh, um... I'm going to say bullish with a caveat. Um, I, they, they have a tendency once other bets reach a certain point to spin them out uh, into their own little segments or businesses. Uh, is Waymo still under their other bets? I'm not sure they are. Are they? No, I think they spun them out. So uh, I, 
I, I think if you, you know, if you take a snapshot five years from now, other bets are still going to be far less than 5% of Alphabet's total revenue. Also keeping in mind uh, their growing revenue streams to begin with, but that may not include businesses that have grown and spun out. Now, the beauty of other bets for Alphabet is that uh, these are businesses, you know, the, your so-called like big moon, moonshot, well, they, they have their their X labs and everything. These are businesses that are so early stage, often pre-revenue. It only takes one or two to really take off in order to make a substantial difference. And uh, I think that's what's so exciting about other bets is that so many of them can effectively fail or flounder and lose money. So you mentioned 600 and some odd million dollars in revenue. What was their operating loss on that? Like 1.3 1.3 billion a lot <laughs> much yeah so just just stunningly unprofitable businesses but i uh oh, i love the other bets i'm bullish on other bets um but uh yeah whether they'll be 5% of alphabet's overall revenue that that's kind of a uh, a question mark and it depends on what they spin out Okay, uh, perfect, Steve. Bullish on the over on the uh, the the over on the bet of of other bets being more than five percent of revenue. Matt Cochran, I'm going to come to you. Uh, I know that you are a lifelong Miami Dolphins fan, so I'm going to ask you Bearish. about your, your your cross your cross state your cross state Bearish. rivals. Uh, bullish or bearish on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers winning nine games next year? Now that Tom Brady is under center, bullish, oh, bullish. bullish. Uh, did you see who st- twelve, 12 I, I wins is a lock? Too. Twelve wins is a lock. Twelve, twelve wins 12 is a lock, wins. and yep. like you said, Steve Gronk. Gronk is coming yep. with them too. I mean, who knows how long Gronk's seasons can last? I'm surprised he's back in the NFL again. But holy cow! Yeah, yeah, bullish for sure. Okay, perfect. Bullish on that one, Austin. I'm coming to you for the next one. Um, I, I want to talk about cloud computing for this. The Bessemer Venture Partners, Nasdaq. Emerging Cloud Index, making sure I have this correct, uh, has tracked 52 different constituents of software as a service companies. These are companies like Salesforce at the high end, but then basically all the way down uh, to smaller market caps as well. But combined, they have a market capitalization of a trillion dollars, and they're all cloud-based software companies. Over the past seven years, this index as a whole has increased in value by 500%. So cloud computing has been one of the market's best performing sectors. Bullish or bearish that seven years in the future, that index is up another 500% gain from here. Uh, First of all, Simon, we shouldn't be advertising other indexes on our podcast. I couldn't help it. I couldn't help it. You're right. We're going to outperform them for sure. So subscribe to 7investing. And I'm bearish because they don't have our, our advisors and we're going to do better than that. Um, I, on a serious note, I think I'm bearish on that. I think they, as numbers get larger, it's harder to repeat those, those types of results. And so, although from here with things suppressed a little bit, like from this point in time, we're kind of at a different point. Uh, I'm still going to go bearish and uh, we're going to do better at seven investing. Yes, indeed. That's, that's my enough. answer. 
And there are going to be pockets that are going to outperform, right? There are going to be some cloud computing companies that are just going to knock it out of the park, but index as a whole could be challenging to do that. Yeah. Yep. And that, and that's kind of why I'm going, going bearish is because there will certainly be outperformers that do far better than that. But I, I, I don't know if an index will. Yeah. Which is a perfect reason for individual uh, investing, investing in individual companies. Steve, I'm coming back to you. Uh, my next question for you is about the Jetsons. The Jetsons has, has successfully predicted several futuristic inventions, including teleconferencing and robots that clean your house. Steve, you're a resident robotics expert and mm. innovative dude overall. Uh, bullish or bearish on you personally getting into a flying car by the year 2040? By the year 2040? I'm bullish on that. I'd, I'd step into a flying car at the first chance I get. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I sincerely doubt that we'll have navigated the necessary uh, aviation rules to make such a thing widely accessible, but hey, someone gives me the chance, I will step into a flying car. Yes, bullish. So you are a fan, but there could be some hurdles in the way of actually getting it passed out. There. That's 19 years from now. That's, that's half my life from now that, that we'll be getting there. I see no reason. Fair enough. Fair enough, Steve. Uh, Matt, coming back to you, uh, based on the website blockchain.com, there were 310,000 confirmed transactions that took place with cryptocurrencies just two days ago. That was for a transaction value of over $1 billion. Bullish or bearish that in seven years in the future, those numbers will be higher than they are today? Uh, I'll go bullish. You know, there's a lot of innovation going on with blockchain. Now, are you talking about completely decentralized cryptocurrencies yeah. or Any cryptocurrencies, cryptocurrencies. Um, that like are tied to um, like permissioned, what they call permissioned cryptocurrencies, which is run like Libra by like Facebook and a consortium of other corporations. Uh, if we're talking about just any cryptocurrencies permissioned and decentralized, I, I'm, I think I'm bullish on that. Uh, so yeah, I'll, I would take the over on that. Yeah, and the permission, you're thinking that there's going to be more corporate involvement in managing cryptocurrencies rather than just tokens going out there uh, that are that are publicly, uh, public blockchains like, like Bitcoin. Correct. Yeah, I don't think, uh, well, I don't know. Okay, I, I think uh, the, 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 the future of decentralized cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin uh, it is very much in doubt. I'm very bullish though on blockchain technology being used uh, for, for real world purposes that, that are like widely accessible, uh, by people. So I'll, I'll take the over. Okay. Very good. And my last question, uh, in this, in this game that we've just developed of, of bullish versus bearish, it's, it's going to come to you, Austin. I asked Steve about flying cars. Let's up the ante on that a couple, couple tens of thousands of feet out into orbit. You and I have talked a lot about Virgin Galactic and space tourism in the last couple of months. Uh, bullish or bearish on you personally purchasing a trip into space for tourism during your lifetime? Wow. Um, bullish. And I'm going to drive there in my cyber truck to the space station to take off in about what 2040 when when they actually release them and they're being delivered <laughs> you you placed your pre-order really early too didn't you 
I I pre-ordered two. Not that I'll be able to buy two. Who knows if, if I'll be able to even buy one at this point. But uh, it only costs a hundred bucks, and supposedly it's it's refundable. And if nothing else, I heard of people selling their pre-orders in Model S's for like a couple thousand dollars, and so that's kind of my backup my backup plan. But I I did the they've got like different motors, and so I, I didn't I wasn't sure a if I was ever going to get one, and b like what motor we would want. So yes, two pre-ordered Tesla Cybertrucks. If you want to buy my spot, hit me up uh, at Seven Austin L on Twitter. <laughs> Very nice. Well, once again, thanks for uh, for tuning in and listening to our our predictions about the future, ranging from flying cars to space tourism to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Uh, thank you to all of my lead advisors for for joining me here on the the fifth Seven Investing podcast. And please let us know what you think. Give us your thoughts about the future for this. Go ahead, Austin. And if you like us, if you want to send us a virtual hug and a virtual thank you subscribe to the podcast like it leave us a review it doesn't have to be five stars i don't know if we can ask for a five star review i don't know if that's legal in the podcast world leave us the number of stars you think we deserve uh but in all seriousness that stuff really helps us get discovered by other people we really want to just reach and help and educate as many people as possible we, we certainly appreciate your virtual hugs and your feedback uh, as well. Thanks again for tuning in. Again, our website is 7investing.com. We are at 7investing on Twitter. We are here to empower you to invest in your future. We are 7investing. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. And before acting on any of the information provided, Listeners are encouraged to consult with a financial or tax professional.